All right, amen. Well, good morning. Hey, it's great to sing those truths that even in a crazy time and crazy world, um, we can trust in God and he's got us. And so I hope that you, whether you feel that or not today, I hope that you know that um, is true. Hey, let's go ahead and dismiss our kids to Children's Church. So grade six and down, we've got something special uh, planned for you. You guys can be dismissed um, to that. And so that's awesome. Hey, it's also good to see my friend Juan Ibarra over there. Juan is a missionary down in Mexico and obviously a part of our church. And today's lunch after church, um, all of the proceeds, everything that comes in is going to benefit that ministry um, down there as well. And so that is uh, very cool. Well, hey, when you came in, hopefully you got some message notes. Um, if you'd like to follow along in this morning's uh, message, and we'll also be taking communion um, at the end of the service as well. Um, but today we are continuing in this series that we've been in for several months in the book of Romans. And today we come to literally one of the most important topics in all of the Christian life. And that topic is the power of love, the power of love. Now, love is something that all of us long for, right? All of us have that longing for deep, real um, love, but it's something that can, can be hard to find sometimes. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of these uh, two uh, teenage boys that are uh, just dreaming about finding just the perfect girl. And so they're talking about this, and one of the boys says to the other, he says, well, I have this cousin, and she is beautiful. She's amazing. She's super smart. So I actually went ahead, and I set you up on a blind date with her. And the friend says, oh, you know, I don't know about that. I don't really do, you know, blind dates. I've got a pretty high standard. And, you know, so what if I go on this date and I see her and she doesn't really live up to my standards? You know, she doesn't really live up to my expectations. Then what am I supposed to do? And so the guy goes, oh, no, no, no. I, I, I know just what you do on that. So here's what you do. You go, you knock on the door. If when you open the, she opens the door, you, you realize that she's not going to kind of live up to your expectations and your standard. What you do is you, you kind of start coughing and you kneel over like you're having an asthma attack and that'll get you out of the whole thing. Um, so the guy's, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. So he goes, um, uh, goes on the date or goes to the date and he gets to the door, he knocks on the door. The girl opens it up and she is beautiful. I mean, unbelievable, super sweet, super smart. This girl uh, just is amazing. And uh, it's love at first sight for this guy. And so he says, oh man, I'm so glad to see you. I can't wait to go on our date. Um, And the girl looks at him and before she starts to talk, starts to cough and have an asthma attack. (laughs) You might've seen that coming. Hey, love can be tricky. Love can be a very tricky thing. We are not talking at all uh, today really about romantic love, but we want to talk about the kind of love that Jesus uh, tells his church about. On the night um, as he is coming to the end of his life, he gathers his disciples um, together, and these are the ones that are going to carry on his church. These are the, one, are the ones that are going to take his message to the ends of the earth. And Jesus gathers them together, and he's already demonstrated his love for them. He washed their feet around the table. And and the Bible says he's about to show the full extent of his love by going to the cross. But in John chapter 13, Jesus says these familiar words. He says this. He says, a new command I give you is, say it with me, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you... I hope we get the point there. Unmistakably, the identifying factor, the main identifying feature of the church and the follower of Jesus is to be a love, and specifically a love that we have for one another. 
And can I just ask kind of an obvious question as we think about that? How's that going for us these days? How's that going for us these days? If you were to ask just 10 strangers on the streets of Lodi, if you could choose one word to describe the church in our world these days, what word, what single word would they choose? I don't know what it would be, but I'm guessing that love might not be one of their top, uh, top words. And yet Jesus says love is supposed to be our main thing. And I still believe, in fact, I believe so strongly that if a church can ever really get this right, that honestly, we would have to lock the doors to keep people away because we are in a world where people are desperate for something solid and are desperate for something that's meaningful, and that is love. People are desperate for love. So in these last couple years, I mean, let's just call it what it is. These have been tough times that we have been um, through. I think some of the words that people might use to describe the times that we're living in, I just jotted down a few words. Maybe the words would be turmoil, dissension, conflict, unsettled, confusion, volatile, division, But then we ask ourselves, what if there was a group of people that was different from that? They were known for their love and they were known for their love for one another and they were known for their love for the needs of the world. What kind of impact would that kind of group of people have in this world? In fact, just to kind of get us started here, I want to just do kind of a little simple little informal poll. Uh, And here's what I want you to do. I want everybody to think of someone in your life, throughout your life, that has had a big impact on you, a positive impact for you. Someone maybe who's encouraged you or helped you, someone who's had a positive impact on your life, uh, big or small. And so think of that one person. And here's, as you're thinking about that person, I'd like you to raise your hand if that person that you're thinking about that's had a positive impact on your life is someone famous, Someone famous. Anyone? Okay, how about someone that is um, someone very rich? Is the person you're thinking of, is it someone very wealthy? Someone who's got a lot of stuff? Um, Okay, is it someone that has a PhD? Brilliant. Anybody? There might be someone like that. All right, think about the person that has impacted you in a positive way. How many of you would say that person, I know that person loves me. I know that person cares about me. You guys, that is the power of love and that is exactly what Jesus is talking about and that is exactly what Paul is talking about in the second half of Romans chapter 12. So that's our passage for the day, Romans chapter 12. If you wanna grab your Bibles and open them up, that would be great um, so you could follow along. Last week, Steve did a great job in Romans 12 verses three through eight. It's all about spiritual gifts. Remember that about that God gives us gifts that can be used to, to serve one another and to serve in the church. And just... Just like in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes a whole chapter in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts, then he turns the corner and 1 Corinthians 13 is the love chapter. So just as he talks about spiritual gifts and then love in 1 Corinthians, he follows the same pattern here in Romans. He talks about spiritual gifts and then he turns the corner and he begins to talk about this kind of love. And he gives this powerful description of what it means that if we are going to be Jesus's followers to radically live out this kind of message to love one another. So you guys ready to jump into that? Let's take a look at our passage, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses nine through 21. And I'm gonna go ahead and read the whole thing and then we'll start to pull it apart. Uh, It says this, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. 
Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those that rejoice and mourn with those that mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, man, isn't that an amazing passage? There's so much good stuff in there. Unfortunately, we're not going to get to every single word in there. But in those 13 verses, I think Paul paints this picture, if you will, of the kind of love that our world desperately needs and desperately is looking for. So our outline's super simple. We're going to just walk through that. We're going to see seven different practices um, that if we are going to show the world the kind of love that it desperately needs, these are seven things that we can start doing um, today. And he begins by talking on a section of how do you love the people that are closest to you? You might say it like this, how do you love your friends? And I think he's especially thinking about the church family and this idea of how do we love one another in the church. And the first way he says, if you're going to show uh, a love that that, uh, makes a difference in the world to your friends, it starts with being real. Be real and be genuine with one another. Look at the first verse we read. Verse 9 says this, love must be sincere. Love must be um, sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Now, when he says love must be sincere, uh, literally, the the Greek word for that, I don't remember the New Testament was written in the common language of the, the world at that time, was written in Greek and was handed down to us, translated into English. And the original Greek word that Paul uses when he says love must be sincere is a word that we're familiar with. It literally means love must be without hypocrisy, without hypocrisy. And the idea, maybe you've heard this before, is hypocrisy, um, actually the word is connected with the, the, the Greek and the Roman theater. And so an actor in a play would be someone that would, would, would play a different part in this play. And one time, sometimes uh, one actor would play many different parts in the same play. And so they would have a different mask that they would wear that would represent each different uh, you know, person in this play. And so this actor would put on a mask and put on a mask and put on a mask. And the actors in the play were called hypocrites. That's what they did. They wore a mask. And Paul writes and he says, hey, if you're going to show love to the world that they need, it starts with no masks. It starts with without hypocrisy. Love is sincere. Step one is take off the mask and just be real with each other. You know, I was thinking about this, especially in the, the world of social media that we are in. There is a constant pressure to keep up a certain image. 
Now, I always believe, even before social media, there's always been pressure to keep up a certain image. You know, all of us feel that um, at some level. But especially with social media, there's this pressure to, you know, to always look a certain way, to be witty, to be cute, to know the right thing to say. And can I tell you, and I'm not, my goal is not to bash social media, but if you just think about it, the whole concept is not to be real with someone. The whole concept is to choose an image that you want to betray to the world, then put a filter on it and put it out there with a clever saying. It's all about presenting something that you want the world uh, to see. And again, I'm not trying to bash that, but what I'm saying is, Paul says if, if love's gonna be, gonna be you know, what, the, what we need and what God's designed us for, it starts with being real and taking off the masks and saying, I come as I am and I am here to be a part of it. And I want to just tell you right now, that is how we want to be here at First Baptist Church. You come as you are. You don't have to put on a great face. You don't have to put, have it all together. You come because the family of God is real with one another. Love must be sincere, take off the masks. Well, you may say, you know what, it's hard. And I get that. And not that you need to be vulnerable with every single person, but it's hard to sometimes let down those masks and to be vulnerable um, with people because you think, well, what if they think badly about me? Or what if they think I, you know, I don't have it all together or you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm weak or something like that. And can I just tell you, if you feel sometimes that you are weak and you don't have it all together, you are in just the right place. Welcome to the club, right? Welcome to the club, and you are welcome here because Christian love is sincere, and Paul says you take off the mask. So that's the first thing he says. Second thing uh, he says is uh, love is loyal. Love is loyal. Look at verse 10. It says, be devoted to one another in love. Be devoted to one another in love and honor one another above yourselves. Here's actually another place where the, uh, the, the, the Greek is actually super helpful for understanding this phrase because that word devoted to one another is actually two Greek words for love that are kind of smashed uh, together. Again, they're words that are sort of familiar to us. One of them is the word Philadelphia. It's where we get the idea of brotherly love. Philadelphia is the kind of love that you would show to a, a companion or to a brother. The other word is philostorge. It's a tender affection. It's often the word that's described between a parent and a child. And so when Paul says, be devoted to one another in love, he smashes those two words together. And what he's saying is, be devoted to one another with a tender compassion that is almost like the way you would love your family. And specifically, this is hard for us, but the way that a a parent would love a child. Because I know that not every family is like this, and this may not have been your experience. But if there's ever someone that you're going to give grace to and extend a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth chance to, It's the way that a parent loves a child. And Paul says that's the kind of love that we're actually supposed to show to one another in the church. You're devoted to one another with a tender compassion and we're loyal to one another. We all long for that kind of stable love in this world. And it seems like it's less and less. People are very transient, lots of things moving around. How do you find stable and loyal love? Um, Well, I think the best way to do that is to be a loyal friend to others. And as you show that loyalty and that devotion to others, uh, that's the, really the foundation for that kind of um, friendship. I also think it's interesting that Paul says that we're to honor one another above ourselves. I love that idea of honor, right? Honor means I'm going to promote that other person. I'm going to lift them up as significant. I'm going to lift them up as important. And Christian love honors other people. 
I heard a great description of, of honor just this last week from um, our missionary uh, Gwen Baker. Remember Gwen was here um, last week with her husband Ken. Gwen talked to us about listening to the voice of, of the shepherd. And, and she was telling me about a, a circumstance in their organization. And the mission organization that they're with is a very large, um, really a very prestigious, as far as mission agencies go, it's a, an old, longstanding, very prestigious, well thought of uh, mission organization. And she was telling me though, and I didn't know this, she said, that for a long time, uh, the headquarters, well, the headquarters are still in North Carolina. And the, 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 the idea or the founding of this mission organization was to take the gospel to Africa. And yet for a long time, starting in, I think, the 40s and 50s and even into the kind of mid and late 1960s, um, African-Americans were not accepted as missionaries in this organization. Either short or long-term, African-American people couldn't join this mission, even though their heart was to reach into Africa. I don't know how they justified that. I don't know what their thinking was on that. I don't know how that went, um, but that's the way it went. Now, that's been changed, and that's over 50 years ago now, um, but still, especially in and around North Carolina, um, where there are many African-American churches in the city that they're in, there's been some distrust between this organization and between the, the local, especially the African-American churches. And this is a story that Gwen told me. She said a few years ago, the president of this very large, significant mission organization asked if he could come speak to the local pastors group in the city. And they said, sure, we'd love for you to come. He knew full well that it would be predominantly African-American pastors um, at this gathering. And so this man comes, leader of this big organization, and he reads a letter. And the letter starts by um, repenting and saying we were wrong in this and then asking for forgiveness. And that was all good and that was really powerful. But then he did this. He got down on his hands and knees and one by one he washed the feet of every single one of these African-American pastors whose dads and grandfathers weren't even invited to serve in the organization. And Gwen said this. She said that changed the power of the gospel, not only in their organization, but in that part of the world. Something tangibly changed when someone said, I am going to honor you. Love is loyal. We're devoted to one another. We honor, we lift and promote the other person above ourselves. So love is real, love is loyal. The third thing is, if we're gonna show this love to the world, love is enthusiastic. You have to be enthusiastic. Look at verse 11. It says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. So this is kind of the ministry of the, the cheerleader. This is the person that's that constant encourager. Uh, and who doesn't need that kind of person in their life, right? We all want someone and need someone that's in our corner and is enthusiastic and never lacking in zeal and spiritual fervor. Now, those are great things and we want to be enthusiastic, but I also get sometimes you just don't feel it right? Sometimes it's, it's hard to kind of keep that up, especially when it talks about being, you know, patient and in, in, uh, joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And it feels like sometimes I, I don't always feel that, especially in a world where there's so much um, negativity. And so I want you to notice a little phrase in that scripture there, and you might even want to circle it in for sure in your notes, maybe even in your Bible, where it says this, the key to that phrase is we are serving as if we are serving the Lord, the heart of this is sir, as if you're serving the Lord. Because honestly, when you're serving other people, sometimes you're going to be disappointed. 
Sometimes you are going to extend yourself in love and it's going to be real and it's going to be devoted and they are not going to return that favor back to you or they are going to withhold that love and you are going to feel disappointed and your expectations are not going to be met. Even in the church, right? So how do we, how do we you know, when we, when we don't get that response that we're looking for, how do we keep going? How do we be enthusiastic in that kind of atmosphere? Well, Paul says it's like this. He says, when you're serving, do it as if you're serving the Lord. So clearly we're talking about serving other people, but our motivation isn't necessarily even the other person. Our motivation is serving the Lord. Uh, whenever I think of this concept, I think of a, a time in my life, I think I might have even shared this here before, but I was a, a young Christian uh, just out of high school and I went and I served uh, uh, at a summer camp and I worked at this summer camp for high school students. It was a great experience overall, um, but I worked in the, the dining room and it was hard work. So six days a week, three meals a day. I, don't, I mean, hundreds of these high school kids would come in and we would serve the food to them and they would make a huge mess. And then we would clean that up and then we would set the table for the next meal. And for me, one of the things that was so hard was they, they wanted you to set the table a certain way so that it looked really nice. And I'm thinking to myself, these guys are going to come in. They're not going to notice what the table looks like. They're going to destroy it and leave a mess. Why should I have to do this three times a day, setting the table up just like this? And for the first week or so, it was fine, and we were all hanging in there. But by about the middle of the second week, we were discouraged, and we thought, why in the world would we do this? And our leader pulled us aside, and he taught me something that I still think about to this day. He said, here's what I want you to do. He said, I want you to set the table the best that you can, but here's what I want you to think about. You're not setting that table for these kids that are going to come in and make a mess, but I want you to picture that you're setting the table for Jesus, and that Jesus is going to come in, excuse me, in the body of one of those kids, and he's going to sit at the place that you made special for him. And you know what, when you think about it like that, when you think about that I'm offering my service, not just for a person, but I'm doing it for the Lord, man, what a difference that makes. And friends, that's my heart for First Baptist Church. Everything that we do, we're doing it to serve our community. We're doing it to love one another, but ultimately we're doing it to serve Jesus. Every person that walks through these doors on a Sunday morning or some other time during the week is Jesus walking through these doors. Every kid that's out in our children's ministry right now where there are people serving is Jesus to those leaders. Every person in our high student in our high school ministry through the goods and the bads, that is Jesus to those leaders. And I'll tell you what, when you start to look at the world like that, it dramatically changes things. So Paul says, be enthusiastic. Don't be lacking in zeal. Keep that up, but do it as if you're serving the Lord. Moving on, the fourth thing he says is be enthusiastic, but also be hospitable. Be hospitable. Biblical hospitality is actually a really misunderstood concept. You might not be surprised to hear that. Uh, But actually, biblical hospitality is one of the most valuable things that the Christian church has. It's one of the most important virtues uh, of any church. Now, when we think of hospitality, I don't know about you, but many of us think of, you know, the the perfectly set table in the perfectly clean house and the perfectly served meal, and that person is hospitable. And I'm not saying those things cannot or or don't have to or can't be a part of hospitality, Um, but you can be invited to someone's house for dinner, and it can be an awesome dinner, and it can be beautiful, and everything could be nice, and you could enjoy it, and you could be very entertained, and that's lovely, but that's different than hospitality. Hospitality. 
When you go to somewhere and you experience hospitality, you don't necessarily feel entertained. Maybe you do. But what you feel is loved and cared for and understood and listened to and valued and your needs met. Right? That's what hospitality is all about. And hospitality is not just having your best friends over. Again, not that that's wrong, but the word for hospitality is actually all about being alert to the needs of other people uh, and saying, how can I step in when there is a need? One more of these kind of Greek words that's helpful on this. The word for hospitality is literally the expression love of stranger. So we talked about Philadelphia. That's love of brother. This is philoxenia, or uh, like you hear sometimes people talk about being xenophobic. Xenophobic is the fear of other people. This is just the opposite or the fear of the stranger or the fear of people that are different from you is xenophobia. Paul says, no, Christians are to be philoxena. They're supposed to love those who are different. They're supposed to love the stranger and they're supposed to show compassion. Verse 13 says it like this, share with the Lord's people that are in need and practice hospitality. Verse 16 says this, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. You know, God himself is known as a a God of hospitality because God cares about the needs, uh, the practical needs and the real needs of people. And he says, come and be real and honest with me and and I'll, I'll meet your deepest needs. And so because God is a God of hospitality, His people are supposed to be people of hospitality as well. And we see this throughout the scripture. The Old Testament says it like this. It says, make sure that you care for widows and orphans and the immigrant or the stranger that is living among you. In the New Testament, hospitality is described like this. Make sure that you visit those that are in prison, that you care for the sick, that you feed those that are hungry. It says, don't forget that when you give your shirt to also give your coat as well. Don't forget that when you go one mile to also go a second mile with that same person. And that's what hospitality is all about. And here is what is fascinating about this. If you do a little study on church growth throughout the centuries, right? Because how do we go from these 12, you know, beleaguered, terrified disciples to literally 2 billion people worshiping Christ around the globe today? How did that happen over 2,000 years? Well, there's a number of different things, but one of the things that you will often see when there are times of important church growth and conversion is the church is about hospitality. And the idea is this, when things get tough in the world and when things get tough in the culture, Christians don't circle the wagons and push people away. Christians fling open the doors and they don't run away from the herd and they don't want to away from the, away, away from the trouble, but they run towards it. And they say, how can I be there? How can I help? Welcome in. I welcome you to my home. I welcome you to my life. I welcome you to my church. And that's biblical hospitality. And one of the things that you see is when the church grows in kind of dramatic ways, hospitality is almost always a component of that. You see the best argument for Christianity is not necessarily this logical, compelling argument for the existence of God or for the resurrection. Those are important and they have their place. But that's not the most important argument. And the most, you know, important thing for a church to grow and people to come is not, you know, great music and good teaching and great kids ministry. The most important argument is the love of the people. And Jesus could not have said that any clearer. And so Paul gives us this great list of how we're supposed to love our friends. But that is 
only part of it. In fact, the most radical stuff, we've seen some challenging stuff already, but the most radical teachings that, that, that Jesus gives us and Paul talks about as well is not just how to love your friends, but how to love your enemies. How do we love our enemies and show Jesus's grace to them? You know, it reminds me a little bit, when you think about loving your enemies, it reminds me of this married couple that I was doing some counseling with. And um, the, the wife said, she said, you know what, whenever we get in a fight, I, I find it's really remarkable that I'm always able to just stay very calm. I don't get too stressed out. I said, well, how, how could that be? How could, you know, even in a fight, you, you know, you stay calm? She says, well, here's what I do. I think to myself, you know, I could get mad and I could call him names and do those kind of things. But instead, what I do is every time we get in a fight, I just decide that I am going to clean the bathroom and I'm going to specially scrub the toilets. And I thought, that is amazing. What a, a sweet servant um, wife that is. I have got to tell Janny about that strategy. <laughs> but I followed up. I said, I said, so tell me again. So how does, you know, cleaning the toilet help you not get angry? She thought about it for, for a minute. She said, well, I usually start by using his toothbrush. which is not about the way we're supposed to love our enemies. That's actually a joke and not the way we're supposed to do it. Paul says, no, man, you show your love to one another, but he said, you also show your love for your enemies. Real quick, we're gonna go through these uh, real quick, these last few verses. How do we show love to our enemies? First of all, it's gotta be grace-filled. You know, we love to receive God's grace. We love that God forgives us when we've wronged him. We've loved that God's arms are always open for us when we've made a mistake. But here's the problem with grace. Everybody loves to receive it. Not everybody loves to give it, but, but love that's going to transform this world is grace-filled that says, I'm not going to hold that against you. Paul says it like this, bless those who persecute you. You may feel persecuted, but, but bless those and bless those and do not curse them. He says this, do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So we love our enemies and we're grace-filled towards them even when they've hurt us, even when things are difficult. The second thing is to, to love our enemies is by being humble, by being humble. Verse 16 says it like this, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Do not be conceited. Again, our culture these days doesn't really promote humility. Jesus says it like this, come to me for I am gentle and humble of heart. That's part of Jesus's invitation. Come to me because I'm humble. But our culture these days doesn't promote humility and probably never has. It promotes the, the person who speaks the loudest, the person who's got the best argument, the person who's got the most, you know, uh, uh, people on their side or those kind of things. But Paul says, no, in this crazy world, he says, live in harmony with one another and don't be proud and don't be conceited. Be willing to associate with all people, even those of low position. So even those you might consider your enemy, even those who have criticized you, even those who accuse people like us, even those who leave you out or put you down, even those who will see the world very differently from the way that you and I might see it and love to rub our noses in that. Be grace-filled, be humble. And finally, Paul says, be forgiving, be forgiving. You know, our response when someone hurts us is, of course, we want to hurt them back. Of course, we want to be vengeful. We want to take that into our hands. Verse 19 says it like this. It says, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it is written, it is mine to avenge. God's the one who's going to take care of that stuff. We don't need to avenge. God's just. He sees all things. It is his to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That he says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So we don't know exactly what that means when um, Paul says that it'll heap burning coals on their head. There's a lot of debate about um, that. It may just mean that, that God brings the punishment and that the burning coals is part of that. Uh, another thing that many scholars talk about is in ancient Egyptian culture around this time, there was a practice that when a person was repenting of something or very sorry for something, that they would get a little bowl of of coals or something like that and they would secure it onto their head and I guess it would be the smoke kind of going up would be a sign of their repentance and so maybe heaping burning coals is the opportunity to allow that person to repent. We don't know exactly what it is but either way what a radical thing it is that we are called to love our friends and and even more than that that to go one step beyond and to love our enemies and why do we do this? We do it because Jesus commanded us to Jesus commanded his church to love our enemies. Jesus also demonstrated this. We're going to focus in this next little bit on Jesus going to the cross. Jesus went to the cross and allowed even his enemies to put him to death. And there on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And we do this because now more than ever, our world needs the power of love. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. And thank you, God, for Romans chapter 12. It teaches us how to use our gifts. And then beyond that, it teaches us to just be loving beyond anything that this world has ever known or seen. Thank you, Jesus, that you demonstrated that for us. And in these troubled times, we fix our eyes, not on our strength, but on you and your faithfulness. And so I pray now that even in these next few minutes that you would come and be with us as a congregation. Teach us to love one another. Teach us to love you. Teach us to walk in the grace and to extend that grace to all people. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, in our remaining time, we are going to spend some time in worship and communion together. And so our worship team's going to lead us in a, a song right now that kind of gives us a chance to focus on God's faithfulness, even in this world that we're living in. Um, when you came in, hopefully you received a, a little communion um, cup and bread. If not, you might want to just grab one of those right now, because um, after the song, I'll come up and I'll lead us in that communion. So, You know, one of the sacred times that we have as a church and as believers is this idea of taking communion together. What we're about to do dates back 2,000 years. Jesus first explained it um, to his disciples, and people have taken it in different times and in different ways through the years. Um, But we gather together around the body and the blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is a sacred moment. And my desire is not to be overly dramatic or anything like that, but my desire is for us to just recognize and be honest that these are hard times that we are living in. You do not have to look very far around the world or around our state or around our community, and there are people that are suffering. There are people that are sick. There are people that have lost homes and property. You know, we see across the the nation people that have lost uh, things to flood and to fire, and you look at these things, and it's easy um, to be overwhelmed. And then you just face the, the personal loss, the hard stuff of life, and then a 
a child is lost, and it's just a heaviness. And again, it's not my place to be overly dramatic, but there's a a different spirit that seems to be in our world these days. Because as we face all these things, right underneath the surface, and maybe not even underneath the surface, is anxiety and crushing depression and debilitating you know, lack of, of confidence and peace. And you see it everywhere. Our young people feel it. Our elderly feel it. All of us feel it. And right under the surface is an anger and a frustration at what's going on. And we want to stand up and we want to shout what's right and we want to shout what's wrong. And again, not that there's not a place for that, but there's a different spirit in our world these days, and it's not of God. It is not of God. And so I want us to focus on the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you for a moment about the circumstances into which Jesus first gave us this tradition. He gathered with his disciples, and their world was falling apart. They were in an upper room, hiding, afraid, full of anxiety, full of depression, full of anger, full of all of the things that we might be feeling. And into that situation, Jesus not only gives us this theological, you know, truth about the forgiveness of our sins through his body and blood, but Jesus speaks into our situation. He says, find peace in that. Find peace because the spirit that's just right there is not the spirit of God. The Spirit of God is peace and joy and kindness and love. And Jesus demonstrates that when he takes bread and he gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my body. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. And Jesus knew full well that the very next day he was going to give his life on the cross. And his little group of disciples that were having it tough at that moment, it was about to get even worse for them. Because now people are going to be coming for them. And what about their future? And what about their family? And what about their provision? And all those kind of things. And into that, Jesus speaks. And he says that there is a different way. And so as we take the bread and the cup together, I want us to do that in the spirit of a church family that loves one another and is in this together. But I want to do it in the spirit of we take this not just as a little thing on a Sunday morning, but very life to face the things that we face. And so, as I said, Jesus spoke these words into troubled times to his disciples, and he speaks them to us now. Whenever you eat of this bread, and you might want to just kind of open up your little pack now, and if you want to take your bread, we'll eat that together. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. Whenever you eat it, do it in remembrance of me, and let's eat this together. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he talks about a new covenant They knew that they could be in a covenant relationship with God by keeping all the rules and obeying the law. And Jesus says there's going to be a a new covenant that's not based on the blood of sacrificed animals, but it's based on my blood poured out for you. And you can be right with God through this new covenant. And Jesus takes the cup on that night. And after giving thanks for the cup, he prays. And then he says to his disciples, this cup is the blood of a new covenant given for you. Whenever you drink of it, you do it in remembrance of me. Let's drink it together.
Father, into troubled times, we know that there is much that is not a firm foundation. And we stand firmly on the truth that you are the firm foundation. Great is your faithfulness, O God, to me. Faithful through the ages, you are our God. And so, Father, as a united church, loving one another the way that we're called to love, we stand in the gap with one another. We mourn with those who mourn. We rejoice with those who rejoice. Father, we hurt with those that are hurting. We feel the anxiety and the suffering, and we come alongside and we say, we can do it. We can do it in our Savior, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is a firm foundation. Father, I pray for every anxious heart here, for every person who can't find the will to get up and get going that day, that person who's feeling depressed, the world's closing in, the person who doesn't know where to turn, the person that's just frustrated and angry all the time. Father, would you put that new spirit in our heart that is your Holy Spirit? Because we stand on the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. We are those people, Lord. And so great is your faithfulness. Come, Lord, comfort the hurting. Strengthen the weak. Fill us with a love that is different from this world, that your people, Lord, who are called by your name, would shine your light so brightly that the world couldn't help but take notice and turn to you. I thank you for this church family. I thank you for who they are in my life. I thank you for the love that I have for each person. And I pray that you would multiply that all across this room and all across this church or that we would be a people who are yours. We thank you for your body broken, your blood poured out and the foundation on which we stand. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.